When countries open to trade, local labor markets more exposed to import competition experience large and long-lasting wage declines. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Mayara Felix is a postdoctoral fellow at the International Economics Section at Princeton University. In 2023, she will join Yale University first as a postdoctoral fellow and then as an assistant professor of economics and global affairs. She is an economist interested in development, trade, and labor economics. I asked her to explain to me why does trade liberalization affect wages and inequality? Thank you so much, Mayra, for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about your work. We know that in the past couple of years, there has been a growing interest in understanding the role of trade and globalization on wages and inequality. Could you please tell us what has been established so far and what are the remaining questions? Great way to start. So... I think there have been several things that have been documented in the relationship between trade and wages. The one pattern that has been documented over and over again, say in the US, in India, in Brazil, in other contexts, is that when countries open to trade, local labor markets more exposed to import competition experience large and long-lasting wage declines. And so the question is, because we know that these wage effects They not only matter because we care about workers, but they are predictive of all sorts of things in the long run, such as political polarization. For both in the U.S. and Brazil, we know that it matters. We need to understand what's the source of these large wage declines. So could you tell us more about the main factors that you're trying to disentangle in this paper? The key thing in this paper is that we see these large relative wage declines for the formal sector in Brazil, which is the context where I'm studying. And I want to understand what accounts for this wage decline. The key hypothesis that I'm going to be testing is whether increasing labor market concentration could lead to an increase in labor market power. So the power that firms have over their workers, how much they can extract from their workers in terms of earnings. And if that happens, how much of that can explain in terms of the wage declines? So the key tensions here is that when a country opens to trade, that tends to reallocate employment to larger, more productive, typically exporting firms. So there is a tension because these firms might pay higher wages. They're more productive. They're, they're higher. But because they are larger, two things contribute to an increase in concentration, both this reallocation to these larger firms, the ones that survive, right? But also a lot of firms exit the market. And so we see this in theory, it's predicted that concentration will increase. How much does the positive effect via reallocation, how much does it offset the negative effect via increased labor market power? That's the key tension that we want to tease out. So in your paper, you identify two key elasticities that you need to explore to understand these overall effects of trade shocks. I wanted to ask you, it's a very tricky exercise, but maybe to give us a simplified way of thinking about your model. The way to simplify where these key elasticities come from is first to understand why are we trying to estimate these elasticities in the first place. And the reason why is because under certain assumptions on labor supply and labor demand, 
labor market power, so uh, which here is measured as the wage markdown, that is the ratio between the marginal revenue product of labor, so how much a worker produces for the firm, for example, the ratio between that and the wage. So how much of what you produce for the firm are you paid? That's kind of what the wage markdown measures. And these elasticities under these assumptions on supply and demand, this wage markdown is a function of these key elasticities. It's in fact a weighted average of two key elasticities. What are they? One is the elasticity with which workers substitute across labor markets. So if there is a wage shock between one market and different that's another, how does the worker, how much of a wage cut does it take for the worker to move, for example, across these markets? That's the cross-market elasticity. And the other one is the within-market cross-firm elasticity. So if there is a differential shock from one firm versus another in the same market, how much of a wage cut does it take in the affected firm before the worker moves to the firm locally? In general, when there is a labor demand shock that affects a firm, workers can substitute on either of these margins. Either they can move locally to a local labor market to another firm, or they can move across local labor markets. And so when a country opens to trade, what trade fundamentally does is change the firm's relative size. So how much of the within-market cross-firm versus the cross-market reallocation margin is important. And so that's why these two key elasticities are key. And the weighted average between them is kind of what determines this measure of the wage markdown under certain assumptions. And the weights are precisely given by the firm's relative size, which aggregated to the local labor market level is the concentration. So the, the level of concentration in the local labor market. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I wanted to ask you about what is the intuition behind the relationship between labor market concentration and labor market power? Great question. So the intuition is as follows, and it's a bit related to what I, I just said before, but let me clarify here. Suppose you're a tiny firm in your relative market, you know, in your market. Uh, there are many, many other firms in your market. If you're a tiny firm and you are negatively affected by a trade shock, the key margin of substitution that matters for you is how workers are going to substitute locally to other firms in your market. And that's the within-market cross-firm elasticity of substitution. If you are the monopsonist in the market, the one-in-one -one firm in the market, then workers, the key margin that you have to worry about is how workers are going to reinvent themselves, how easily they can do that and cross you know, to a different market. In general, firms are kind of in between these two things. And that's what trade fundamentally does, is change firms' relative size. This happens at the firm level, At the labor market level, so if you're trying to understand cross-market cross differences in wages and cross-market differences in employment in response to trade, this measure of market power, which is the wage markdown, at the local labor market level, it's also a weighted average between these two key elasticities, but the weights now are labor market concentration. So at the firm level, it's the firm's relative share that bounces the firm back and forth between these two key elasticities. At the local labor market level, it's the labor market concentration measure that bounces the market back and forth between these two key elasticities. Knowing the importance of these two elasticities, I wanted to ask you, what are the predictions of this model in terms of firm's market power in response to a trade shock? So what this model says is that 
In order for trade to have a meaningful effect on local labor market power, so the average wage markdown at the local labor market level, two things need to happen. One is trade must increase labor market concentration in order for that to happen. The other one is that the gap between these two key elasticities must be large. There must be a gap between these two key elasticities. Why is the gap that matters? The intuition for that is that if it is as easy for workers to substitute locally within a market across firms as it is for them to substitute globally, say across firms, then it doesn't matter how trade is going to change firms' relative size. It's just as easy or as hard for workers to make the substitution. So in that world, trade doesn't really change labor market power much over time, even though the levels of labor market power might still be high. You know, And that's, in fact, kind of what I find in Brazil. I estimate that the levels of labor market power are quite high, I estimate that for every marginal dollar that a worker generates for the firm, the worker is only paid 50 cents. In contrast to the U.S., the U.S. estimates are between 65 cents and 80 cents on the dollar. So Brazil is way below that. But because I find that these elasticities of substitution are actually very similar quantitatively, that those 50 cents on the dollar are not changing much over time. So it's as if Brazil is closer to the what we call the monopsonistic competition benchmark, where firm size doesn't really matter much for how much they can mark down workers' wages, but that level of market power is still pretty substantial. You test your model on Brazilian data, and I wanted to ask you a bit more about the specificities of these settings, what are the pros and cons of using this data, and what is your empirical approach? Let me start with the context, right? So Brazil liberalized in the 90s, similar to India, Mexico. And what that did is the country used to be an adamant of the import substitution model that was set up in the dictatorship in the 70s and all the way through the 80s. And then in the 90s, the move towards neoliberalism pushed the government to reduce all import tariffs towards about the same level. So this kind of differential change in tariffs across sectors has been a source of variation used in many different contexts. In Brazil specifically, by Rafael Dixcarneiro and Brian Kovac, it's helpful because at least these tariff changes are not driven by lobbying, by any one firm or any one sector. This was clearly driven by the reform. And so it's helpful because we can use this cross-sector variation in tariff reductions to estimate effects on local labor markets, and in this case, also within markets, but across firm effects. So that's the context. What kind of data would you need to test? So if the hypothesis is we want to test whether opening to trade change firm labor market power, and we're trying to explain these wage declines in Brazil for the formal sector, at a minimum, what you need is you need the universe of formal sector employment in Brazil. You need to know if you're trying to explain how come the there are these negative relative wage effects, you need to observe all the firms in the country. So in Brazil, we have that with the highest employer-employee link data. You also need these trucks that are differential across firms within markets so that we can estimate the within market cross farm elasticity of substitution. And then aggregating that up, we can then estimate the cross market elasticity of substitution. So you need those two things. The upside of using the employee employee link data is that you observe that, you observe the universal formal sector employment, all the firms, but you also, as a plus, observe the workers. And that's really helpful because you need to tease out, out of the wage, observable worker characteristics, unobservable worker characteristics. And you can even use the employee-employee links to also get a 
an informative sense of how should we really be defining a market here. And this is kind of helpful because you can ask the question of, you know, conditional workers switching firms but staying in the formal sector, where do they go? And you can compute these transition matrices for region to region, occupation to occupation, sector to sector, and kind of get an intuition for what seems reasonable for defining a market. The theory doesn't tell us where we draw the boundary, actually. So this is not a theorem that these transition matrices directly tell you where a market boundary is, but it's at least a bit more intuitive and you can use the data for that. The downside of using this data is that the data does not include the informal sector. And in a country like Brazil, the informal sector is pretty substantial. It's about 50% of the labor force. To be very clear, these results are trying to explain these wage declines that are for the formal sector, so we can speak directly to the formal sector. But in the paper, in the appendix, I also showed that if would these estimates be valid if we were to incorporate informality? And the answer is it's not clear. It's theoretically ambiguous which way incorporating informality would have on these estimates because essentially you overestimate concentration. There are in fact many, many more firms that might not be observed, but it turns out that you underestimate these inverse elasticities. And in the paper I discuss why, and it, it boils down to the effect on the first stage versus the reduced form of these elasticities. So we need more quantitative work with better data on informality which is hard to get in order to be able to do external validity study as to incorporate informality. So I wanted to talk about the main calibration results of your paper, and specifically, how does import competition affect employment and wages? All these effects, the effects on wage at the local labor market level, on employment at the local labor market level, and even the elasticities, these are all estimated in what we typically call in the literature in a reduced form manner. So these are all estimated with regression, either with IV or with a diff and diff regression. And so here, what we are comparing is more versus less affected local labor markets. And we are tracing out the effect of the shock of the import tariff reductions at a local labor market level on the outcome of interest, so say employment or wages. It's not necessarily a calibrated exercise. It's estimated directly from the data from these kind of natural experiments. Trade liberalization reduced employment and reduced wages. This is all relative. So regions more affected had lower wage growth and lower employment growth relative to least affected regions. And that's a result that has been documented before, both by COVEC in 2013 in Brazil and Dix Kerner and COVEC in 2017 for the formal sector itself. The difference here is this is kind of like the starting point. And now we're going to try to understand what is the mechanism through which the wage is declining. Based on what you find, what are the implications in terms of policy? So knowing how these import shocks affect wages, how should we think about political response to that? There are two things that are important to highlight here. So once I have estimated the inverse elasticities, for example, and measured concentration in the data, we then have an estimate for each firm and for each local labor market of what's their market power pieces. So what is the marginal revenue product? So the wage is always two components. One is the marginal revenue product of labor. So how much productive the firm is, how you are productive, how much you sell in the output market, you know, in terms of prices. All of that gets into the wage. The question is how much of that 
do you need to be paid before you leave? And so that's the market power piece. So once we estimate the market power piece, the residual variation left over is the marginal revenue product. That decomposition is helpful because we can then also quantify the positive effect on wages that comes about by concentration increasing. And so for policy, the first thing to remember is concentration increasing per se is not necessarily a bad thing. There is a positive effect on it because employment is being relatively reallocated towards higher, more you know, larger, more productive firms. But there is the negative effect. So for policy-wise, if you see in the data that labor market concentration is increasing, that in itself is not necessarily a concern. You need to estimate these elasticities to understand. But the second one, in the case of Brazil, I find that these elasticities are so similar, so market power is not changing much over time. But as a policymaker, you might be worried about, well, the levels of market power are still pretty high. And in this paper, you cannot understand, because this is not a macro close general equilibrium model of the economy, you cannot, in this paper, talk about the level effects of wages of labor market power being so high. We can speculate it, but I don't quantify it or talk about it in the paper. And so as a policymaker, in a model like this, the key thing to reduce the levels of labor market power is to facilitate the substitution within markets but across firms. That's the key margin of substitution that I find in this paper that's so much more difficult for Brazilian workers relative to, say, U.S. workers. So in Brazil, workers have a much tougher time substituting within markets brought across firms as opposed to U.S. workers. Cross-market substitution, that estimate is very similar to the U.S. So for policymakers, if you're concerned that trade might increase labor market power, you know, this has inequality effects, it has all sorts of... Other things that we're going to get to talk about soon when I make book recommendations that are not necessarily about, about the wage, you might want to think about policies that make that within market cross-farm substitution more easy. And that could be all sorts of things, from policies that directly affect the farm, such as hiring and firing costs, from policies that directly affect the workers, such as transparency and information about availability of jobs or improving the infrastructure within cities to make substitution more easy. What is your perspective on where your overall field of research is going and where do you think are the remaining questions and challenges ahead? The field of study of how trade affects market power and inequality, earnings distribution, that whole agenda moves forward in a few different directions. One is of better measurement. So being able to more better measure or more flexibly define market power and estimate it. Another one is we might worry about market power in labor markets, but there's market power in product markets too. And how do you combine those two things? And how do you, in a more data-driven way, quantify the net effects of trade on welfare in a way that's not as model-driven? So that's one way. But I think the other very different route that I think is so not yet explored, and I would love to see more papers on, is kind of this idea of how changes driven by trade affect market power or social structure in a more human relationships driven way. So not necessarily about how the markdown itself, but about institutions, right? About how people perceive trade firms or, you know, workers perceive firms or how firms perceive trade and, and things like that. This affects on like sentiment. And then the other route is how has this changed over long spans of time? So if we look back at the last 400, 500 years where, you know, globalization really boomed as for, of course, in the last 30, 40 years, it's really when it completely boomed. But we've had trade forever. 
and how does that really changes institutions through this lens of class struggle, the sense of how there is capital owners and wage earners. So I think both measurement and how do we get better of identifying welfare effects in a, in a more data-driven way is one. But the other one is explaining or exploring these less tangible ways in which trade affects relationships between firms and workers across the globe. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation you would like to share with us. So I thought about two things, actually, that I would love to recommend. So in our understanding of inequality or how we talk about inequality, I think we often talk about the income distribution per se. And that's especially in the United States. I think that's like the thing that people really talked about. But growing up in Brazil and my sense of, you know, being a citizen of the world is that much less is understood about resentment and about how inequality slowly and eventually ends up building a class system. Like there's this idea of the poor and the rich, and these classes are almost like really well-defined and hard to break. Brazil is kind of like that. And so to understand, I think to get a better glimpse of how inequality slowly and I think perniciously corrodes the social structure of a society, I have two recommendations. One is a Brazilian movie, which is a recent one called The Second Mother. In Portuguese, it's called Que Horas Ela Volta. It's a 2015 movie. And that movie goes into a situation where there is a very wealthy family that has a maid that lives with them and that grew up with them, you know, that essentially raised their child. And the movie, in a very beautiful manner, talks about the within-household, really classist relationship The book recommendation gives a more historical view of this issue of how colonialism, by definition, is a classist system, um, reflects a lot of inequality in the society. This is in the Indonesian context. So the book is called This Earth of Mankind by Pramoedia Anantator. This is the first book in a four-book series. It's an incredible book. It's a historical fiction. So this is set in the 19th century Indonesia. And it's about this young man who is the son of Javanese nobility, but he gets Dutch education, which most Indonesian kids do not. And it's about his awakening of what it means to be Indonesian and about the colonial system itself and how the lack of education that the colonial system imposed on locals reproduces the intrinsic inequality that's not only seen in terms of income, but in terms of social structure. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And thanks a lot for this conversation. This was great. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Clementine, for the invitation. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van Eventer in Toronto. I want to thank Aisha Philippe for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.